Hello and welcome to Inside Infrastructure, an inside look at the decisions and decision makers behind Australian infrastructure. I'm Adrian Dwyer, Chief Executive of Infrastructure Partnerships Australia. In this episode of Inside Infrastructure, Janice and I spoke with Paul Fletcher, the Federal Minister for Communications, Urban Infrastructure, Cities and the Arts. We spoke about his brief stint as a playwright, market power and competition in the telecommunications sector, Western Sydney Airport, and what both sides of the aisle agree on when it comes to infrastructure investment. It was a great chat. So here it is. Minister Paul Fletcher, welcome to Inside Infrastructure. Thanks for joining us today. Good to be with you, Adrian and Janice. Um, now, when we were doing research for this podcast, I've got to say you've got one of the fullest CVs that I, I, I've ever seen. Um, and it, of course, culminates right now with you being Minister for Communications, Minister for Urban Infrastructure. But there's a long story uh, before that. I wonder if you could maybe just give us the potted history of your, your journey to the job you're in now. Well, uh, I came into the parliament in late 2009, and since that time, I was a backbencher for several years. I was parlsec to Malcolm Turnbull when he was communications minister. Then I was, when Malcolm became prime minister, he appointed me to a portfolio that was variously named um, uh, major projects, urban infrastructure and urban infrastructure in cities, and I did that for three years. Then had some time as Minister for Social Services. Then after the 2019 election, uh, Scott Morrison asked me to be Minister for Communications and the Arts. And then December last year, he asked me to take back on, in addition to that, urban infrastructure and cities. Now, before I came into the parliament, I was a, a lawyer like a lot of politicians. I did an MBA at Columbia in the US. And um, the field of... Transport and communications is something that has always interested me. And, you know, the portfolio in the 80s and 90s, I think, uh, was called transport and communications. Then it was split apart because communications uh, became so substantive and important. But what I've been lucky enough to do is, I guess, work in those industries. So I spent a year at TNT uh, when I first came back to Australia after finishing my MBA. At the time, TNT was a, was a joint shareholder in ANSET, so I spent a lot of time working on ANSET issues. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> then uh, I spent four years working for Richard Alston, who was communications minister, uh, eight years at Optus in a senior executive role, a couple of years of consultancy and then into parliament. Long-winded way of saying I've been fortunate to be able to work in the communications and infrastructure space in various ways for disturbingly now about a quarter of a century. And I do feel that there are some real similarities between the transport side and the communication side. The economic structure is that there are very big capital costs, uh, big fixed costs and lower um, you know, variable costs. In, in communications, you're right at the extreme of that. You know, building the NBN, uh, taxpayers have committed $49 billion, um, but the incremental cost of sending um, data across a network is very low. Of course, you've got to price it to recover the capital, um, but that's, you know, one end of the extreme. Of course, uh, people running airlines will tell you they have very big uh, variable costs, fuel, people, et cetera. But it's still the case that you've got a huge capital cost, fixed cost, 
And a lot of the economics is how do you get as much traffic over the network to um, defray or to get the return on the capital? So long-winded way of saying I've been, uh, I've been lucky enough to work in areas that are part of a continuum for a long time. Um, I'm, I'm going to get you back onto the subject mm. of the economics and regulatory models in infrastructure soon. But I want to just briefly talk about the arts part of your portfolio mm. because there's a history in the arts as well, isn't there? I, I, I had practiced this question, so I'll deploy it. Minister, in my time growing <laughs> up watching Yes Minister, I never thought I'd get the chance to ask this question, but I will. Um, Minister, tell me about the facts of life. <laughs> yes, so <laughs> when I was at uni, I was involved in writing and performing in law reviews um, with a group of mates, a couple of whom have gone on to very distinguished careers in the arts. Um, Peter Duncan, uh, writer, director of Rake, um, the well-known ABC TV series, and he's done a lot of other movies and TV series. So Peter was our kind of creative guiding force. Uh, Craig Hassel, who later became chief executive of Opera Australia and is now um, chief executive of uh, Royal Albert Hall in London. Um, but anyway, after we'd finished uni, we put on a couple of uh, – semi-professional productions, um, semi-professional in the sense that we put money into them, we raised money, put money into them, but we didn't get any money back. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, look, it was a great experience and um, it does mean that I have, you know, a fair bit of empathy when I'm dealing with uh, people in the, in the arts sector. It's been very tough for the arts sector through the pandemic, um, you know, performances, cancelled, venues closed, artists losing their gigs. The arts has been hit very, very hard. And we've provided so far cumulatively our COVID-specific arts support from the Morrison government, $745 million. So we've really provided some very significant support. And I'm optimistic that we're going to see the sector get back on its feet. But I also think there'll be a bit of a creative dividend from all of this. What have we experienced and, and how have we responded? Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, I, I suspect the incubation time for some arts organisations will prove quite fruitful. Mm. Um, just in all of that, it is just such an eclectic career, um, which seems to have um, served you well in the portfolios that you've then run. Um, was federal politics always the end game or part of the plan? Or, or was it somewhat that you felt they were the ne next extension from the, from the works you were doing? I was always interested in politics. As a teenager, I got the bug for politics and was very interested in it, read a lot of political biographies. Um, I joined the, joined the Young Liberals at the age of 16. I was quite mm. involved in student politics. And I certainly wasn't um, thinking, oh, well, I must go into politics. That's the only thing that will give my life meaning. But I was interested in it. And I had a, in the back of my mind that maybe if the opportunity came up, I'd have a go. I wasn't really sure. I had the chance to work for a minister, as I mentioned, for several years, and that was a fascinating experience working for Richard Alston, 96 to 2000. So we worked on the privatisation of Telstra. The coalition had taken that to the 96 election as a policy um, to privatise, to sell a third of Telstra into private ownership. Um, getting that through... The Senate was an enormous challenge, but uh, Richard Orson was the deputy leader of the government in the Senate. He did a very, very good job on that. 
uh, introduction of digital television, which was another very meaty policy area I got to work on. Um, so there was a lot going on in those years, but it also, I guess, uh, reinforced in my mind the conviction that, well, if I ever get a chance, I'd, I'd be interested. And um, uh, through a combination of circumstances, um, I ended up running for pre-selection in Cook in 2007. I lost to some bloke called Morrison, who's done all right since then. And uh, two years later, I got the chance to run in Bradfield when Brendan Nelson, who'd been leader of the opposition, lost the leadership and then decided to leave the parliament. Um, so there was a by-election or there's a pre-selection with, um, I think, 17 candidates. Uh, the cards fell my way. Then there was a by-election with 22 candidates. Um, that was uh, winning. If you win the Liberal uh, pre-selection in Bradfield, then you're in with a pretty good shot. It's always been a Liberal seat since it was established in 1949. Of course, I don't take it for granted for a second. No politician ever likes to think of their seat as a safe seat. That, that's, uh, that's a recipe for disaster. But, um, yeah, I, I, I had the, the chance came up and I was able to take the chance and um, I've been, you know, very fortunate in the things I've been able to work on since I've been in the parliament. Um, can we talk about that, the, the Telstra process? Because mm. I mm. think that there's a there's an arc to that in your career mm. now being mm. responsible for the NBN and particularly the stage of the NBN is. So privatisation of Telstra... Um, set certain conditions in the telecommunications market that then persisted for 20 years and the structure mm. of that what with with hindsight what was right about that structure what was wrong what would you um, have advised differently look i think it's worked pretty well australia was following i guess a global movement probably kicked off in the uk with the privatization of british telecom mm -hmm. but a range of countries around the world where telecoms had been historically a government-owned monopoly, were opening up the sector to competition, and it's very important that that's part of it, and then removing the public sector from ownership of the, uh, the telco, what had previously been the government-owned telco. Now, that happened to come at the same time that mobile was going from being a bit of a... Uh, a novelty to becoming really the, 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 what it is today, the powerhouse within all telcos. Mm. Indeed, there's a war story at Optus from people who are around in the 1991 exercise of bidding for what was the second licence to operate a fixed telecommunications network, that with that came the licence to also operate a mobile business. And at the time... Their view was, oh, well, do we really have to take that? I suppose we do it. It's part of the deal. But people thought the value was going to be in the fixed line network. As it turned out, the value was overwhelmingly in mobile. And that links to the point that if you look at what's happened in mobile since 1996, there's been billions and billions of dollars of private capital invested. We've gone from uh, GSM, now known as 2G, to 3G, which first introduced video calling, to 4G. And now, of course, 5G, each one of those has involved billions of dollars. At the same time, the telcos have continued to extend the geographical footprint of their network. I guess my point is that privatisation, together with competition, has been key to the enormous amounts of private sector capital invested in delivering these services. And one of the rationales for privatisation 
is that governments face very extensive demands on the public purse. And if you can find a way to tap into private sector capital to deliver what are essential services, such as telecommunications networks, uh, or indeed airports, as we're doing, uh, as occurred, I guess, with the um, airports going into private hands throughout the 90s and 2000s, and that, that capital now, some of that being obviously recycled into Western Sydney Airport. Um, by doing that, you can then provide a, amongst other things, a more certain stream of capital going into the necessary network upgrades because there are certainly plenty of stories of within what was then Telecom Australia of exchange upgrades or services being delayed because of the government's budgetary position in that particular year. There was a real moment in time really just before going into um, the first COVID lockdown where, you know, in, in the sort of big build program of the NBN had sort of come to a complete, it had, the rollout had sort of mostly been mm. completed and that, that was a very big milestone. But, but obviously um, that's not the end of the program, is it? I mean, what, what does the next generation of investment look like um you know and then and what what then do we do with that is there more that government should be doing around now you have that capability how do you make sure that that capability is optimized and used in you know in in, in productive activity um could you set out what you think um government will be doing in those successive generations of work well let me first take up your observation that there was there was a moment in terms of the NBN last year, because I very much agree with you. When the pandemic hit, 98% of premises around the country were able to connect. So we'd come a long way since we came to government in 2013, and there were barely barely over 50,000 premises connected to the fixed line network. There's now um, almost 12 million premises able to connect, around 12.3 million, I'm sorry, around 8.3 million are connected. And at the height of the pandemic, we had about 40,000 premises connecting every week. So the change in strategy that we adopted in 2013, which had a real focus on getting the network rolled out as quickly as possible, was absolutely key. We estimate that if we hadn't changed that, if we'd stuck to Labor's strategy, as at the time the pandemic hit, there would have been four to five million fewer premises able to connect. Dealing with working or studying from home trying to rely on a previous generation of broadband would have been very difficult. Video conferencing requires the same speed up and down. And DSL, the previous generation of broadband, just can't do that. So um, it was really critical that when the pandemic hit, we had successfully driven the rollout as hard as we had. But as you rightly say, um, things don't stop here. So we committed last year an, ad an additional $4.5 which is going to be uh, invested to uh, achieve uh, the next stage in the growth of the NBN network. There'll be 8 million premises by 2023 that will be able to order the speed of up to one gigabit per second, that's blindingly fast broadband. And uh, in addition, we're upgrading connectivity to businesses so we've established what we call business fibre zones, and there's now over 200 of them that we've committed to around the country, where as a business, you can order a 
over an optical fiber, a symmetrical business grade service up to one gigabit per second. There's no upfront capital cost, whereas historically there used to be. And the wholesale price that's charged the retail service provider, which in turn will be reflected in retail prices, is the same as is charged in the CBDs of our big cities, whereas historically we've had a tiered pricing structure cheapest in the CBDs, getting more expensive in successively uh, sort of more distant zones. So, um, and 700 million of what we committed was for that expansion of those business fibre zones. So long way of saying, we're continuing to upgrade the network. We rolled it out quickly. Um, and what we're now doing is moving to the next stage where, as I say, about 75% of the fixed line, people in the fixed line footprint will be out of order a speed of up one gigabit per second. To draw together a couple of themes across um, the transport piece and the telco mm. piece, we spoke about toll roads and mm. the over-the-top service in a toll road mm. is the, the car, the, yeah. the, the person driving the car mm. who pays mm. for the road. The same is true in, in an energy network. When I switch on a light, it ultimately comes through to my energy bill. The overtop service is the electricity that I consume, which I pay for. Um, it, there's a difference in the MBN, which is the overtop service provider, as you said, is Netflix. Yeah. Um, the MBN rollout that you spoke about with one gigabit up and down, um, particularly the down part, gets chewed up by higher bit rates and, and higher definition on something mm. like a Zoom or a Netflix or something else. And, and that beneficiary doesn't pay. There's clearly a failure in the pricing structure there. Is that something that needs to be fixed and can it be fixed? So the question you're asking there is the capital cost of building the NBN, which revenues is that recovered from? Which charges is that recovered from? And the model is that the uh, those who are charged are um, end customers who get their connectivity over the NBN and they're charged by a retail service provider who in turn pays the wholesale charge. So um, certainly some people have been making this point, well, um, you know, uh, Netflix and others operate a business they get their connectivity to end users over the NBN should they be uh, paying for access to the NBN. Now, that's not the way the framework is set up. It would be quite a significant change in policy. Um, uh, so, you know, we've got, a, we've got a pretty well-established way that the NBN operates today and the financial modelling and the uh, rate of return targets the government has given to NBN under this, the uh, ministerial statement of expectations are set on the way that it operates now. So um, that's, I think, probably the way I would answer that question. Um, but it does link to this point about returns on uh, returns to those who invest capital in building the physical networks over which the internet operates um, are not as high as they were. And ultimately, you can't have an internet, you can't have a digital economy without the physical towers, the physical ducts, the physical fibre and so on. So um, I do think that'll be a question that'll bear some continuing examination uh, in Australia and around the world. Um, 
particularly if over time we see, uh, you know, a reluctance from owners of capital to invest in upgrades of physical network. It, it does feel like there's something of a parallel with what's happening in the energy sector where the, the changing nature of the market necessitates changes to the regulatory pricing mm. and cost recovery structure because of the energy transition where there's a movement essentially to a capacity market. Um, I, I guess I wonder if that, like that, the sort of learnings from those other sectors will ultimately lead to potentially a wholesale change in the way it's, I mean, wholesale as in full-scale change. Yes. Just like it happens in- Look, I, I don't, I don't claim to be an expert in electricity markets, so I'll probably um, uh, not give a specific comment on that. Um, but I guess the you know the general observation would be the the nature of the revenue streams that link that that uh, network owners, telco network owners receive. Um, uh, has changed and is continuing to change. I mean, a good example that the owners of uh, mobile networks give is that, you know, for quite a while, um, SMS was a pretty important revenue stream. Now, of course, there's uh, all these over-the-top services like, you know, WhatsApp and, of course, I- I- iMessage over between, between Apple iPhones and so on, where there's no revenue for the sending of that message that goes to the network operator. Um, so, yeah, I think this is probably a question that certainly as you think about, you know, how a regulator like the ACCC thinks about permitted rates of return, um, the regulatory framework that applies to NBN or indeed that applies to uh, telcos under the, or the mobile termination rate. You know, these are all factors that, you know, they'll be needing to think about. The other thing that you mentioned was kind of the moving frontier of what's competitive. Mm. So you, you, tel, telecommunications was seen as, at least from a backbone perspective, as a, a natural monopoly. To, to some extent in urban areas, you, you can have competing mm. fixed networks. But with telecommunications, there was this movement in the frontier of what was a contestable mm. piece. Like, and, and I'm just interested in that because that happens in other sectors as well. We think about... Um, meter reading for instance in in energy is is now technically a a, a contestable um or even ownership of meters is mm. contestable they, have you seen other areas across your portfolios where you see the frontier of contestability and monopolies changing and therefore further opportunities for the the benefits that come with competition for supply oh yes definitely um I think one area is airports. Again, to go back to Western Sydney Airport, I mean, historically, we've assumed in Australia that there was a kind of one-to-one relationship between a a, a big city and an airport. That left us in the slightly unusual situation that you've got Sydney as a city of over 5 million people with only one airport with scheduled passenger services. At the moment, of course, not many of them, but hopefully they'll they'll be uh, getting back to normal reasonably quickly. Um, Now, that the kind of market power that that gives Kingsford Smith Airport is reflected in things like how much you pay for parking, what the landing fees are, et cetera, et cetera. Um, by being able to uh, open up competition in the provision of services to land and take off, 
by establishing an airport at Western Sydney Airport, uh, um, that I think, you know, that that is changing the way I think the entire aviation sector is going to think about competition in the aviation market because I believe there will be opportunities, for example, for low-cost carriers to base themselves at West Sydney Airport and to serve markets and routes that would not be viable from Kingsford Smith, putting aside the fact that you can't get slots at Kingsford Smith. Um, so I think that's one example. But then in what I think we've seen over the last 10 years, in particular in telco and the internet, is you've got the telcos providing the physical networks over which the internet operates. Their margins are, um, are under pressure. Their returns are under pressure. The over-the-top businesses, uh, the digital platforms, are generating very big returns. So that, I think, has been a change nobody envisaged or could predict back in the 90s. Mm. Uh, just uh, going back a step, I, I think I'd love to hear a bit more about you, you made some very clear connections and correlations between, you know, the, uh, delivery of broadband and the telco industry and airports. Um, and, and I think, you know, you've talked about uh, private investment really driving a lot of progress in those industries, which they have. And, you know, but but in those industries where there are those very high fixed costs, those tendency toward monop monopoly, do you, do you, would you, what, what do you see as being the guiding principles for where government should act and why and how? Um, and, and what then can we expect to see with Western Sydney Airport uh, in terms of the way that progresses in the, in the next few years? I do think one guiding principle is trying to find the appropriate line between attracting private capital and then identifying where there's a continuing role for government. And we certainly see that in regional and remote telecommunications. It's, mm. it's much more challenging to get a commercial return in regional and remote areas because you've got the big capital cost of building out uh, the fibres or the, the, the wireless towers, but the customer base is much, much smaller. So we've tended to use programs like our mobile black spots program, mm -hmm. which has been essentially a reverse auction where we say to the telcos, you tell us what subsidy you need to put a tower uh, beyond your existing network footprint. And then we've, we've essentially sought to um, take the, the bids or the proposals that give taxpayers the best value for money. So I think that is an important uh, principle. But I think then the second principle is where are there opportunities to establish a new competitive dynamic? And certainly with Western Sydney Airport, we do see that as a priority, that um, there's, there's uh, building a new airport has a very big capital cost and there are material risks, um, for example, in relation to the regulatory environment that, that in turn have a big impact on uh, value. So one of the things we thought about when we arrived at the model that we did, namely a government-owned company funded with taxpayers' capital to build the airport and to operate the airport, 
but with the expectation that at some time in the future, it's likely it ends up in private ownership. Part of our thinking was um, government is probably better placed to take those risks in the early stage than a private investor and that if you're looking to, on the one hand, get the public policy outcome you want, which is more competition, more choice services for people in Western Sydney, um, there's over 2 million people who will be closer to Western Sydney Airport than Kingsford Smith. Today, if you live in Western Sydney, you face a one to two hour journey right across the eastern fringe of the metropolitan area to get on a plane. And as uh, I remember going to see John Borghetti a few years ago, he made the point to me that, um, you know, when he was CEO of, of Virgin, that they had customers who were paying $79 for an airfare to Melbourne or Brisbane, that they were paying 200 bucks for a cab to get from Western Sydney to the airport. So I think that that principle is um, uh, supporting competition and working out what's the right stage to use taxpayers' capital and when is the right stage to be seeking to attract private capital. Hmm. One of the things that just as a reflection there, is is risk transfer. And I think it doesn't, it probably doesn't get enough credit that governments or private ownership, where the government decides to privatise something or build something through a, a structure that has private capital in it, during this pandemic has been a very effective way of transferring risk. You look at things like toll roads, for instance, and people might say that, you know, um, they might have reflections on, on the price of tolls or whatever, but there can be no doubt that that risk has been borne by private capital that chose mm. to take that risk in, in, in for a, a risk-weighted return. Mm. The same is true of airports where they're publicly owned. But I, that wasn't, that was just a point. My question is this. Um, I, I feel like that those principles you spoke about to some extent are under threat or at least dilution. Um, I was heavily involved in a piece of work for you and you were minister in 2016 on was the the first australian infrastructure plan that was a i think a reasonably coherent document that laid out what what those principles should be for when government should own when it should divest when it mm. should regulate etc but we've seen probably i think in the five years since that, that it, my view would be an erosion of the application of those principles at certain in certain areas and certainly an erosion of the policy um communities um uh, and a continued devotion to those kind of broad principles is that is that fair or am i just being precious look i'm not sure i'd entirely agree with that i mean there are always um pressures about service delivery and customer experience and um it can be natural to see those linked to arguments about ownership structure. Where I do think there's been some questions asked is where you have an asset that gets privatised without enough work done on the regulatory framework that applies to it. It's important in policy terms if you are going to shift an entity from being government-owned to being privately owned, that you've got a very solid regulatory framework around it, dealing with things like, uh, pricing and increases in, in prices. Um, you touched on tollways. I'd, I'd make the point that where the effectively the bargain between government and citizens is, 
there are existing roads, they're available to use, they have congestion and other issues. Um, you will now have another option that will attract a toll. And if you, you know, value your time sufficiently, et cetera, et cetera, you'll pay the toll. So, there, I, I, you know, I think governments need to um, think carefully about any transition of an asset from private ownership, public ownership to private ownership. Clearly, with tollways, there's an additional um, complexity because it's a choice between, you know, a road that's free in inverted commas or zero marginal cost and a road where there's a charge. Where it's electricity or ports or telco, where you've had an entity which has been charging customers, but it's been government owned, it's not, it's not quite such a, uh, a big change. Going back a, a step, has COVID changed the outlook or the timing or any of the planning for Western Sydney Airport? What sort of disruption has it been to that development? The, the answer I give to that question is to point to the example of Dr. JJC Bradfield, the man who designed the Harbour Bridge after whom my electorate is named. He built the Harbour Bridge, as we know, opened in 1932 with six lanes of mm. road traffic plus two train tracks, tram tracks. And at the time, he was criticised for providing, you know, much more road capacity than was needed. It was a very far-sighted decision. And Sydney siders can thank him every day today for the fact that he did that. My point is infrastructure assets are long-life assets. Western Sydney Airport will have a life of 30, 50, 80, 100 years or more. So um, it's important not to get too influenced by short-term changes in traffic levels. At the moment, there's a very dramatic but short-term change in amount of air travel. Um, I'm confident that uh, we're going to see that return to a normal path. Um, I don't think it'll be six months, probably two to three years, and that's what I understand most of the forecasts are, but we'll see it get back to a normal path. And Western Sydney Airport, when it opens in 2026, uh, there will be strong demand. And I also make the point, because of its location, because of the addressable market that it serves, because it's providing additional capacity when the existing airport is constrained, uh, I think it will generate new demand and uh, air travel that might not have occurred uh, absent the establishment of this new airport. And um, curfew-free. Indeed, very, very important. Um, that, that's bipartisan, isn't it? Everybody supports curfew-free. Yes, that, yeah. that is the Labor government's, uh, uh, the Labor opposition's position as well as the uh, Morrison government's position. Yeah, hugely important to preserve that, particularly from a freight perspective. Hmm. And, and around Western Sydney, um, I wonder if you might elaborate on what you think of the future of um, city deals and, and what we might see in that space in the next 12, 18 months. Look, I think the Western Sydney city deal is an approach to urban planning and economic development in Australia, the like of which we haven't seen for a long time bringing together an integrated approach between a Commonwealth government, a state government, and eight local councils. The anchor or foundation 
Infrastructure projects are clearly Western Sydney Airport, 5.3 billion of Commonwealth funding. Then there's what's called the Western Sydney Infrastructure Plan, which is over 4 billion. Um, that's roughly 70, 75% Commonwealth balanced state. So that includes things like the, the Northern Road being upgraded to four lanes all the way from Norellan up to Penrith. That's a, that's a major benefit. The M12 that'll run from the M7 to the airport and a range of other significant infrastructure investments. But then through the city deal, you've got a set of mechanisms to coordinate those infrastructure investments with job generation and with creating a great place to live. So the Western City Parkland Authority uh, is um, charged with delivering the Aerotropolis, now named Bradfield. That's an excellent name, and I can say I had nothing to do with it. That was a New South Wales <laughs> government decision, but one I welcomed. Um, but that's the roughly 120-odd hectares of land that will be effectively the core of the Western Parkland City, linked to a significant focus of investment attraction. You know, there's a consortium of universities. There's a number of uh, global businesses that have signed expressions of interest. New South Wales government leading that work, but obviously working closely with the Commonwealth and Western City Parkland Authority, the board, there are some Commonwealth appointees as well as state government appointees. But it's been, I think, a really good example of cooperation and shared strategic engagement between um, the Commonwealth government and the New South Wales government, the Morrison and Berejiklian government. And certainly I've been very impressed by the way that the leaders of the eight uh, Western Sydney councils have thought about and engaged on these issues with a view to not only advancing the interests of their, their local area, but also the broader Western Sydney. So, you know, there's a lot um, coming up. Obviously, the airport will be complete by 2026. We're also committed to the, uh, the metro line running from St Mary's down to the airport and then to the Aerotropolis, 23 kilometres. That's an over, over $10 billion investment jointly funded by Commonwealth and State. We specifically chose that north-south alignment because we wanted it to be the spine of the new Western Parkland city. And I should acknowledge, of course, the work of Lucy Turnbull when she was chair um, of the Greater Sydney Commission and, and her team, because that, that framework for Greater Sydney of the Harbour City, uh, the River City based on Parramatta and the Western Parkland City based around the Aerotropolis, that really underpins then a lot of those other commitments. So as an integrated approach to planning, um, aiming to both, uh, aiming to achieve several outcomes, create new infrastructure assets, um, localised economic development, industry attraction, and building uh, a, a metropolitan area with great livability and amenity where lots of people are able to be located close to jobs. We don't see a lot of that integrated approach in Australia. And I do think, I mentioned Lucy Turnbull. I think it'll be one of the major legacies of Malcolm Turnbull's prime ministership because Malcolm was, uh, was very interested in these kinds of ideas and the role the Commonwealth could take um, working together with uh, state and local governments. Mm. Yeah, it's certainly an interesting model of governance, like a, of city governance. Um, and, and 
have you found in practice that the, the range of city deals are sort of operating largely the same or are they quite bespoke within areas? Look, they, too, they do tend to be quite bespoke. We've got eight of them. Um, Western Sydney certainly is a good example of, of the principles at work. But if I take, for example, the Launceston city deal, you know, Launceston's a city of, what, 75,000, 80,000 people, the heart of the economic heart of northern Tasmania. One of the key elements of that deal is to materially expand the University of Tasmania campus at Inveresk, which is just across the river from, um, you know, the, the, the centre of Launceston. Then there's a project to uh, renovate, upgrade key elements of the public realm in, in the centre of Launceston. Um, there's a major project on river quality because the Tamar River is so central to Launceston and a range of other integrated projects. Um, that idea of boosting a university, getting more young people uh, in or near the centre of a city to just increase amenity, get a sense of what more is happening, but also support the work of the university in getting, um, you know, educating people, um, helping um, equip, equip people for a modern knowledge economy. So that's a good example of, of some of the principles. You know, in Adelaide, the Adelaide City Deal, a major focus of that has been to support um, lot 14 on North Terrace, which is the um, revisioning, reimagining of the old Royal Adelaide Hospital site to be a really exciting area where you've got a lot of startup activity. So the space agency is located there. They're attracting a lot of um, tech businesses, including defence businesses linked to the big defence spend going into Adelaide. A major um, Aboriginal art institution is being built there. Uh, that'll be that'll be an institution of national significance. So these city deals um, uh, have been important, and we've got eight of them in place, and uh, we're working right now on one for southeast Queensland, for example. So we're, there's a continuing roadmap. So there's a lot made of, I guess, the state of the federation and the state of the relationship, and a lot of that's been exposed by the pandemic. Um, in a broad sense, what, what's your reflection on the state of the Federation? Is, is it broken? Has it worked well? Where can it be improved? Uh, no, I certainly don't think it's broken. I believe our Federation has dealt pretty well with an unprecedented shock. You know, we've not had um, a health shock of this magnitude for 100 years, as, as many people have pointed out. We haven't had an economic shock of this magnitude uh, really since either the Great Depression or World War II, depending upon how you, you want to measure it. Um, so I think that if you compare us to other federations, US, Canada, Germany, um, we've managed to, I think, get a pretty reasonable balance and complementarity of the roles of the Commonwealth and the states. Uh, look, there's a set of powers that, that sit with the states. Um, happily, we don't have pandemics very often, so there may be things people don't think about very much, but the reality is um, uh, the issues that the states have taken the leadership on, they've done so because in terms of the allocation of responsibilities under our constitution, 
There's a set of responsibilities that sit with the states. There's a set of responsibilities that sit with the Commonwealth. The National Cabinet has been a very good, pragmatic, innovative mechanism in a time when state and federal, state and territory and federal leaders needed to be uh, dealing very closely. Uh, I think it's worked pretty well. And ultimately, I think the assessment we can make as a community of how well Australia has responded to the pandemic compared to other countries, um, it'll be what have been the health outcomes in terms of, um, uh, you know, fatalities and serious illness, and what have been the economic outcomes. Now, this has been going for 18 months. There's been some ups and downs, but we continue to be right down the bottom of the list in terms of deaths per million. Of course, every death is a, is a tragedy, but nevertheless, our public health outcomes are very, very good. And our economic outcomes, um, you know, the sort of downturns, the, the, the GDP contractions that we've seen in many other countries, the numbers have been much lower here. Now, the September quarter, of course, uh, inevitably, um, uh, that the, the, the uh, lockdowns in response to Delta will have an impact on that. But I think when we come back and reflect with the wisdom of a bit of hindsight on how we got through this, I think we'll conclude that our federation handled it pretty well. Um, not perfect, of course. Have there been errors made? Of course there have been. But um, I think our system of government has done reasonably well in responding to a very, very significant challenge. Do you think when that, when the dust settles and the hindsight's available to all of us, do you think there will be a case for just going back and doing a bit of a, uh, I guess, a nip and tuck on the constitution to make sure some of those imperfect bits you mentioned are solved for next time there's an, another black swan event, be it pandemic yeah. or something else? You know, um, it's, it's a perennial question that politicians always get asked, do we have too many levels of government? Um, could we... Um, you know, reshape the design of our federation. The pragmatic reality, as we know, is that any change to the constitution requires, um, you know, has to hit a lot of hurdles in terms of overall majority support, support in the majority of states. Um, the success rate of referendums is not enormously high and it only ever happens when there's strong support from both major political parties. So, yes, we should obviously look at those questions and see what's worked well, what hasn't. If you take something like border closures, um, there will be, there are, of course, people who are very unhappy about aspects of how those have operated. Um, people on the New South Wales-Queensland border, people on New South Wales-Victorian border are probably two communities which have suffered particularly significant adverse effects when people have been used for decades to effectively being an integrated economy and you, you know, you live in Coolangatta and work in Tweed Heads, um, you live in Albury, but um, your kids go to school in Wodonga, et cetera, et cetera. So those communities have had material adverse impacts um, and the, the restrictions on free interstate movement of people and goods, um, those have come at significant uh, cost, um, but uh, I think what can also be argued is that each level of government has um, had challenges to deal with 
has identified a set of policy tools, has used them. Um, you know, there's been a lot of pragmatic cooperation and engagement between Commonwealth and states and between individual states. Um, and so while it's human nature, I think, to look at what's gone wrong and how things might have been done better, um, uh, without wanting to sound sort of, you know, complacent and everything's fine, I do think that a hard-nosed assessment would say that um, collectively as a nation, our system of government has handled this pretty well. I also want to acknowledge the role of business. You know, the logistics systems of Coles and Woolworths and IGA and, and other retailers, um, uh, the role of the telcos, um, there have been... Um, many businesses in this time that have just been critical to the continued um, uh, functioning of society and, and community confidence. And the work done in the supermarket sector on uh, shelves being stocked and people being able to buy food, um, that has been absolutely essential. So I think our business leaders and, and people working in um, businesses of all kinds, large and small, can also take some pride in, in the way that um, they've responded to this challenge right alongside the role of, you know, all of the heroes in our health sector, all of the teachers who are continuing to provide education remotely. Um, you know, collectively, while I think it's natural that we look at what hasn't gone well, I think we should also acknowledge uh, some pretty remarkable things have been done. You, you forgot to give credit to the parents homeschooling. Indeed, absolutely. <laughs> we speaking have suffered. The, uh, <laughs> yeah, speaking as the father <laughs> of a 12-year-old, um, <laughs> I totally understand that point and I want to acknowledge my wife's extraordinary work. So, so is National Cabinet then the way forward? Is that the future of Federation? Um, and what, what's its next big set of challenges, do you think? Look, I think that's a bit hard to predict. Um, but um, I do think it's been an, an effective tool in helping uh, Commonwealth coordinate with states and territories over the last 18 months. And, um, you know, I think the Prime Minister's made clear that he believes um, there are continuing useful things it could do. Ultimately, that'll be a matter for, you know, a cooperative deliberation by the Prime Minister and uh premiers and chief ministers, but, um, um, you know, I think despite all the, um, the inevitable rough, rough and tumble of politics, it's been interesting seeing uh, political leaders all around the country, premiers and chief ministers, referencing and going back to what's been agreed in National Cabinet, what they're discussing at National Cabinet. Um, I, think it's, I think it's helped give Australians collectively a sense that um, there is an overall uh, integrated approach to the challenges we're facing, um, recognising that there are, you know, naturally differences of view on how to solve and deal with particular issues. Um, on the, um, the rough and tumble of politics, just to get into the infrastructure piece, mm. they, obviously what we hear is fights between... Um, different sides of politics at a particular jurisdiction on this project or that project or who's going to deliver it faster and what's the cost blowout and what have you. And then again, between um, a state government and the federal government. And one that springs to mind over the last few years was um, 
Victoria's view that it wasn't getting its fair share of, mm. of infrastructure funding from the Commonwealth mm. government. Um, on a practical day-to-day level, how does that relationship work out with the states? Because I, my observation of it when I talk to your state counterparts is that it's quite different in reality versus the rhetoric. Well, look, I, I deal regularly with uh, state and territory uh, ministers for uh, transport or, or roads or, or whatever the respective title is. So does Barnaby Joyce as the Deputy Prime Minister. So, you know, he's Minister for Infrastructure and Transport in the Commonwealth Government as well as Deputy Prime Minister. Then I've got specific responsibilities for urban infrastructure. Uh, he and I obviously work together closely uh, and we engage with state and territory ministers. Um, and that was the case when Michael McCormack was in the portfolio, when Warren Trust was in the portfolio. Um, you know, we, we, and there are close working relationships between our department, the Commonwealth Department of Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development and Communications, and state departments, whether it's Transport for New South Wales or, you know, Vic Roads or um, um, various um, state departments and agencies. And obviously, we're collectively making long-term decisions. We're making decisions about funding commitments um, for projects that, you know, may take five years or more to build and will hopefully have a life of uh, 20, 30, 50 or more years. So, look, inevitably there are political spats um, played out in public, um, but at the same time um, uh, there is, you know, continuing engagement and um, a shared desire to provide infrastructure outcomes that serve Australians and help people move around efficiently, help freight move around, uh, improve safety, of course, that's critical. Um, so I think, I think there's a shared set of responsibilities which tends to provide a, a continuing impetus and instinct to engage, even if there may be, uh, it can't be denied, the uh, throwing of political bombs in the public domain from time to time. We always ask all of our guests the same final question, um, which is, uh, what's your favourite sort of infrastructure and why? Well, that is, um, that's a difficult question to answer, but I guess what I'd say is convergence has been a buzzword for 20 plus years. What's striking me at the moment is convergence in infrastructure bringing together physical infrastructure and IT and communications. And indeed, we've seen some great examples of some of the projects funded under our 5G innovation initiative, uh, which is a $20 million program, 19 projects funded. At Moorbank Intermodal, there's going to be a project where 100-ton autostrads, uh, which carry containers around, pick them up off the train, and take them to warehouses, um, they're going to be using 5G to support enhanced automation in the operation of those autostrads. So, for example, there'll be more sensors all around the logistics park that will feed data to each individual autostrad over 5G that will help it effectively see round corners and make better decisions about when to move and when to stop. 
there's a project involving one of the electricity companies in New South Wales, which is using drones that will fly along the poles and wires, high-resolution, ultra-high-definition video camera, feeding back a data stream in 5G to um, identify uh, faults or areas where maintenance is required. So infrastructure that is both physical but enabled or enhanced by IT and communications is probably what I'd say is my current favourite. I, I think we'll allow that as a favourite, one that reflects your <laughs> portfolio. So I was hoping you might pick a favourite one of your children, but you've definitely avoided <laughs> um, Minister, thank you ever so much for your time with us today and thanks for being on Inside Infrastructure. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks, Janice. Great to chat with thanks you. Thanks very much. Well, that's it for today. Thanks, as always, to PwC Australia for their continued collaboration on Inside Infrastructure. Please make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and leave us a rating or comment on LinkedIn. This episode was recorded and edited by Adam Stevens from TAG, PwC Australia's internal media agency. Thanks also go to Linda Beershon, Jacob Laird, Madeline Bartlett, Brendan Pierce, and Michael Player.